men. A motley band of followers, fishermen, tax collectors, rebel rousers, and troublemakers who had seen the resurrected Christ said, you can kill us if you want to. It doesn't matter. He's alive. You can imprison us if you'd like. I've seen him. Even doubting Thomas, he said, my Lord and my God, I believe, because he had put his hands in, in the nail-scarred hands and in the nail-scarred side of his master, Jesus, who had promised he would be raised again. We've seen him. We know he's alive. And they set this world right side up because within just few days, we see thousands coming to Christ. We see in the months to follow, tens of thousands coming to Christ. And we see the church expanding even to 2017 here at 1508 Hardesty. We stand in the stream of those who have sung this same song, maybe with different words, Jesus Christ today is risen. Amen. In just a couple of weeks, we will celebrate that resurrection. But today, as we gather in his presence, I pray that the words of that song would just ring out in your heart. Jesus is alive. Today, I want us to move in our uh, consideration of revival and spiritual awakening to the Old Testament, to Psalm 139. I invite your attention there. It's perhaps one of my favorite of all of the songs of the ancient songbook of God found right in the middle of Scripture. Psalm 139, and as we have thought about revival from different aspects, we've talked about fire falling from heaven. We've said, Lord, we want to see a supernatural manifestation of your presence in our midst. Today, I want us to change that a little bit and begin to contemplate together in a series just for the next few weeks that I've entitled, For You, Search Me, O God. It will extend past our Easter resurrection service Certainly we'll take a break from this as we have revival services next week. But my prayer is that we would experience revival in the coming days. Not just services scheduled uh, under the, the moniker or the banner of that title, Revival. I pray that it would be far more than just an advertised event, but it truly would be a movement of God. That in these coming weeks, you would begin to experience the manifest presence of God like never before. That it would lead to transformation in our hearts and in our lives. You know, that idea of God searching us may be a little bit uncomfortable. But today, what I want us to do is to contemplate the character of God. And when you do, it will lead you to a natural response of, Lord, just search me and know me because I don't want anything that would keep me from experiencing fully who you are. You know, sometimes when we think of repentance and we think of revival, we think of all of the things that go along with it, we, we have sort of a negative connotation. God's going to beat me up. I'm going to the woodshed spiritually. I'm going to feel bad about my sin, and because of that, I just need to do better. Well, I want us to erase any thought of that kind of thinking. I want us to erase those patterns and focus on the goodness and the greatness of God. As we see in this text together, we will experience that in a unique way. So let's look together. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the entire psalm together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the light is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How powerful are those words. Look at verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts for me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe against those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray together. Father, may the prayer of our hearts today, open and honest before you, be these words. Search us, O God. Lord, would you examine our hearts today? Not that we would find fault there and feel discouraged, but we would be liberated because as you find in us those things that are forgiven in Christ Jesus, as we see them today, I pray that we would forsake sin, we would confess sin, that we would walk away from those things and walk in the fullness of an experience with you even this morning, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Speak to us, O Lord. Amen. I I put in your notes, in your listening guide there, in your worship uh, bulletin, one of the best ways to walk in holiness and purity is to be regularly introspective. It's to look inside your own heart. It's to ask that question, Lord, are you willing to search me? Would you just look into my heart and see if there are things in me that are offensive? Now, it involves, as I said in your notes, being very sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God, His conviction, being humble when you read the Word of God, turning there and looking there, and then looking inside the the Word of God almost as a mirror. Let it held up in front of you, show you those places in your life that are not what God has designed or desired. And then praying proactively and saying, God, would you be willing to reveal to me those character flaws that need to be rectified and sanctified? They need to be dealt with this morning. But more than all of that, church, hear me. I I want you to hear this. More than all that, today we simply need to pause 
and contemplate our relationship with God fresh and new. And we do that by considering His awesome character. As we listen to the words of the psalmist, maybe they begin to inspire you to think about how God would give us today courage to pray just like David, search me. I'm willing for a God like that to look into my heart because He does love you and He has your best interest at heart. So here's what I want us to do, church, this morning. I want to show you five basic places that we can contemplate the character and nature of God in our relationship. Number one, I want you to see this. God's knowledge is completely inexhaustible. God's knowledge is inexhaustible. And here's what I want you to fill in. He created us and He knows us. Look back with me, if you will, and fill those in first. He created us so He knows us. But then let's look together back in verse 1 and beginning there. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Think about this with me for a moment, Christian. God knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions. He knows your motivations. He knows your fears. Who better than God would know everything there is to know about you? He created you. He made you. And that's not just a word to believers this morning. If you came into this place and you are far from God, God knows you. He created you. Who better than God would know those things? I can at times sort of pre-guess what my wife is going to say. We've been together for some time and at times I finish her sentences. God finishes your sentences before you utter a word. He knows it all. I'm reminded of a couple, they were in their premarital days, and it was so sweet and lovey-dovey as they came together, and they were so close, and they would say, oh, I love him so much, he knows me so well, that he finishes my sentences. We, in fact, finish each other's sentences. A year or two later down the road, they come in, and their arms are crossed, and they say, he won't even let me finish a sentence. Isn't that sometimes how we respond to one another? The reality is God knows every single thought that you have thought, that you are thinking, or that you will think. In fact, I would say we ought to be be careful of our thoughts. There was a time in the New Testament that the disciples were in their minds just contemplating some things about who would be the greatest, and they were contemplating in their own minds some things, and Jesus had said, knowing their thoughts. You better careful, be careful what you think in the presence of Jesus. Amen, Brother Wes? I mean, that's a reality for us. We need to be careful what we think. Now, when does that happen? All the time. So you need to be guarded in your thinking because God created you and He knows you and He knows all about you. In fact, the word of the psalmist is in Psalm 94.1, He knows the thoughts of the wise, of a man, that they are but breath. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.20, it says this, the psalmist wrote, you know when I sit and when I rise, as we've read here, but excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, he knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Even the wisest thoughts we have, unless tempered by spiritual wisdom of God, are just our own contemplation. So what I would say to you this morning is this, rest in the fact that God's knowledge is inexhaustible. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Where does that apply to us in revival? Some of you come to this place this morning with an honest sense in your heart that you have sinned too much for God to be able to forgive you. 
There are people that walk into churches every single week just like this one. And maybe I'm reading somebody's mail this morning. Maybe there's a secret that you alone know. You say, nobody knows this about me. God knows it. And he loves you anyway. In fact, Jesus died for you. We'll we'll move into that in a moment. That's one of the next steps that we'll see. But you have not in any way sinned so greatly that God cannot forgive. And here's why I would say that. Jesus died even while you were still a sinner. He died long before you were born and before I was born. And your sins in Christ are already forgiven. How arrogant is it for me to think that I could sin so mightily that I could overcome the power of the blood of Jesus? How arrogant and pompous is it for me to think that I could sin in my rebellion in such a way that it would overcome the power of the resurrection, that it would overcome the cross of Calvary. Friend, you have not sinned so far that the Lord cannot reach into your world and forgive you this very day. God created you and he knows everything you've thought, everything that you have done, everything that you have said or even will say. God knows it all. Our hearts, our minds, our souls are like an open book before the Lord. And again, that shouldn't cause fear and dread. It should just be a reality that moves us toward transformation. It moves us toward the Lord that we would say, God, you know my heart already. You know my life already. You know my faults. You see me warts and all. You know it all. Darkness and light, he sees. Secondly, I want you to see this. Not only is his, uh, we, we see his knowledge inexhaustible, but his love is incomprehensible, and it just flows directly from that first thought. He knows you and still loves you. Fill that in. He knows us and still loves us. Let, let that sink for a moment into your spirit. God knows you and loves you anyway. There are people all around you that love you for your performance. Maybe at work it's based solely on your numbers. What did you do last month? And you're only as good as your next report. Maybe in marriage or in a relationship you find yourself on this treadmill of performance and you're just trying to earn the approval of someone else. God loves you in spite of you. He loves you knowing all that he knows about you. Look at verse 17. I'll just skip down there many all throughout this psalm, but he says, how precious also are your thoughts toward me, O God. He knows the truth about us. Now, in honest reality, we don't always want the truth, do we? If you're thinking about this in terms of an examination, we see this in our culture in an amazing way. Lately, in the past years, There are on college campuses what are known as safe zones. If a word somehow offends you, if a word hurts your feelings, and and the term has kind of popped up that those folks are called snowflakes. But the reality is if, if your feelings get hurt and you need a therapy dog in a safe place, you can go there and you don't have to deal with the truth. You can say, well, I didn't like that, so I'm not going to deal with it. I heard it this way, and I don't mean to get political with that, but, but I heard it this way. It made so much sense to me that we don't always want the truth. How many of you have ever seen the television show Shark Tank? Anybody ever seen that show? That's one of my favorite shows. Some of you probably don't care for that. My wife doesn't care for that. She leaves the room when I watch that. So I have to TiVo and watch it later because I like my wife being in the room with me. But I was watching not long ago, and here's the, the premise of the show. Uh, an, uh, a 
basically an entrepreneur comes before a group of billionaire venture capitalists, pitches an idea, and says, would you be willing to give money to support this business? That's it. Well, a lady came in, and here was her idea. She has invented the skinny mirror. Now some of you ladies are going, wait a minute, I need, what time does Shark Tank come on? I need to watch that show. No offense, ladies. I, I, boy, I could dig a hole quick, can I? Some of you men are going, boy, I need to buy one of those. Now you can dig yourself into a hole. Be careful. The application for the skinny mirror was not for the home. What it did, in essence, was it was concave just enough that it would make a slighter version of you appear in the mirror. You would look maybe 10 pounds lighter. And the application was that uh, clothing stores, retailers would buy skinny mirrors because if you tried on a pair of clothes and you looked in that mirror and said, boy, I look good in this, you're going to buy it. And, and the pitch was very, very convincing. The, the sharks didn't buy into it. They said, that's lying. And she said, yeah, but nobody wants the truth. They want to feel good. And I said, what a sermon illustration for today. Nobody wants the truth. We want to feel good. Now, if you'll permit me to just carry that a little farther for a second, in my sanctified imagination, I began to think about the skinny mirror and how there would have to be other tools that go along with it. You see, if I buy a skinny mirror and I look and I go, boy, that's how I look, I need to buy a skinny scale that also reflects what the skinny mirror says. And now I feel real good about myself. I've got my skinny mirror and my skinny scales, but the reality is, I probably now need to buy skinny glasses for all of my friends and family so they'll see me the way that I think I see myself. And all of a sudden, it's a whole lot easier for me just to stop and deal with the truth. We don't want to deal with the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, God's already dealt with the truth. He knows you, and He still loves you. Isn't that a great thought? I love verse 17. The thoughts of the Lord toward us. What does he say? How precious are they. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. This is where John Wesley came. If you were to look in the hymnal that's in front of you, I think it's hymn 250 or so, but amazing love, how can it be? John Wesley sat down and just said, Oh, that my God would die for me. Amazing love. How can it be? And that question just rang out in his sermons and in his songs and in his life for years to come after that declaration. He said, amazing love. You know me and love me anyway. You would die for me as wretched as I am, as sinful as I am, as undeserving and unworthy as I am. Jesus, you loved me that much. That ought to move us in rapturous thoughts to say, oh God, I want nothing to stand between you and me. And that's what the psalmist did. The psalmist said, oh God, look into my life, search me. We'll, we'll move to that in a moment. But here's the building point. God created us and he knows us. He knows us and he loves us still anyway. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. He created us and knows us. It's inexhaustible knowledge. He knows us and loves us still. That's incomprehensible love. Number three, I want you to see this. God's presence is inescapable. God's presence is inescapable. Because He loves us, He watches over us. Now, if you will, go back to the text with me for a moment, and let's just follow along and see a couple of thoughts here. What a powerful thing. Verse 3, you scrutinize my path and my lying down, as we saw, and be intimately acquainted with all my ways. Verse 5, 
you have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. He, he in essence says, you have hemmed me in, God. He goes on to say, if I were to go to heaven, if I went to the highest height of heaven, there's God. If I were to go and make my bed in the lowest depths of hell, God's there before me. You go before me, you are behind me. You hem me in. You have me surrounded, God. You know what I'm thinking. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm doing. And you are inescapable. You are all around me. Again, that should not bring fear and trepidation. It shouldn't bring disappointment and heartache. It should bring liberation as we say, God, you know it all anyway. You have promised in your word that you love me. And because of that and the fact that you are inescapable, I cannot get away from you. I'm simply today going to turn to you fresh and new. The, the desire to escape from God, the impulse to flee God, it's been said that it is literally as old as the fall itself. Genesis 3, 7, what does it say? And man hid himself from the presence of God. It's a laughable concept. You can't hide from God. He knows all about you. In a famous sermon entitled, The Hound of Heaven, God is always after us. If you look at uh, Psalm 23 at the very end of it, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's like the shepherd's watchdogs on the hill. Goodness, round them in. Mercy, gather them to me. God has been pursuing you because he is inescapable. You cannot get away from his presence. Now, I, I will have to admit, for all of us, there have been times that we've run from God. Anybody here ever run from God? There are several of you that did not raise your hands. You're either sleeping or lying. We'll talk about that during the revival next week. There are times that we have run from God. Let me ask this question. I don't want to just be negative. There have been times throughout my life that I have run directly to God. Anybody here ever run to God? I mean both feet as hard as you could directly to the foot of the cross. You said, oh God, I need you. When we're running in those places, I want you to see that God is drawn to desperation. We've talked about that over these past several weeks, that crying out always came to a place of meeting with God. When you begin to cry out to God, whether you're running from God, Jonah was a great picture of that, ran from him, stopped in his desperation, cried out to God, met the Lord right there. It wasn't that when he cried, God came to him. God was always there. It's when we cry out that we stop to recognize his presence is inescapable. But when we run to God, we see that same premise. Many of you could give a testimony of that. God has drawn you to him through an act or a moment of desperation. Before you came to God, you were ignoring him. And you came to a place when you cried out. And he loved you then and he loves you now. He was watching over you. His presence was all around you. And you couldn't fix it. You couldn't deal with it. And you cried out. And that may have happened even after your salvation. You came up against an absolutely impossible circumstance. But you cried out to the Lord. He was already there in the midst. One of the greatest truths that we as a church can come to this morning is this. This realization. There is no escape from our God. Like fugitives, we may run, but we cannot ultimately hide 
from the presence of the God who penetrates, as the psalmist said, even the darkness. He said, darkness is not dark to you. You see in full high definition, even in the pitch black darkness of my circumstance, you know right where I am. That ought to bring somebody some relief this morning. If you're in a dark place and you feel like God has forsaken you, you can't escape him. He's with you. He's in this circumstance. He is there. There's no place to hide. Once we give up our fight and allow ourselves to be found in this relentless pursuit of His, the hound of heaven coming after us, we discover His intention is never to harm us, but to heal us. It's not to ruin you, but to redeem you. It's not to embarrass you, but to edify you, to build you up. And so we will begin to experience revival as we contemplate these thoughts. His inexhaustible knowledge, His incomprehensible love, His inescapable presence. He created you and knows you. He knows you and loves you. He loves you and because of that, He watches over you even in your trials and troubles. If you begin to read on through, if we were to study just word for word and verse by verse, we would see as the psalmist understood, God, you created me by weaving me together. You formed me in my mother's womb for your purpose, and you ordained every day of my life, even before one of those days was ever lived. In starting point this morning, we were talking about the gospel. We were just talking about what it means to be connected to God and then separated. Sin separates. We know that death, biblically, is separation. And it was a simple illustration that was there, but the light bulb went on for some of the folks in starting point. There's a Coke machine back there. And I said, what would happen if I unplugged that machine? And they said, well, obviously it wouldn't work. And I said, no, what would it not do? And they said, well, it wouldn't keep the drinks cold. What else would it not do? Help me out, church. What would it not do if I unplugged it? It stopped dispensing Coke. That's right. Nothing would come out. It wouldn't take money. What is the function and purpose of that Coke machine? Some of you would say to make money. No, the function and the purpose of a Coke machine is to dispense drinks. It keeps them cold and dispenses them. Well, the reality of that is that is its designed purpose. But if it's cut off from the source of power, it will not fulfill its purpose. And if you and I have sin in our life that is separating our relationship with God, it's coming in between us and God, then your purpose is going to be marred. And so many of us are living beneath the privilege of an unfettered relationship with Jesus Christ. And you and I should come to this place of saying, God, search me. You know everything. You love me anyway. I want this stuff out of my life. The stuff of the world will absolutely cloud you to the purposes of God, and it will begin to show us all these things that seem to satisfy, but the reality is none of them will, and God knows every bit of that. Number four, God's participation is personal. Here's what I mean by that. He protects us because he delights in us. He protects us because he delights in us. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought about the fact that God delights in you? That, that may be a foreign thought to you. Some of us have a, an image of God that says he's waiting to just pounce on us when we do wrong. It's like whack-a-mole. As soon as I step up in sin, boom, he's right there to just take my joy, zap, zap, zap. The Bible paints a different picture. 
The Bible says that God delights in us. And if you'll permit me, I want to give you just a few verses I would encourage you to jot down. They won't be on the screen, but I want you to hear these. Zephaniah 3, 17. Zephaniah 3, 17. Write that down. If you can't spell it, just put Z-E-P-H and stop there and look it up later. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That verse goes on. That passage paints a picture of God singing over his children. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Listen to that again. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. God delights in us. And to answer the question, why is it that God would delight in us? And how does he delight in us? And why would he do that? There are some other verses I want to give you, just a few. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you or put in you the desires of your heart. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, uh, my God, with exceeding joy. Let me give you another one. Psalm 74. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Last one, Psalm 63, 3. Because of your steadfast love, or excuse me, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now those last two verses really give us an indication of why it is that God delights in us and how. God delights in you when you delight in Him. That's His greatest delight. That you would turn to your Creator and you would say, God, you are magnificent. God, you are great. And when we turn back to Him, the greatest satisfaction that we will find is the greatest joy in God. John Piper said it this way, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. That simply means that it honors God when you give God the credit He deserves. It honors God when you turn to Him and say, Lord, you are great. You are mighty. I will rejoice in you. And when we delight in Him, He delights. God delights about in us is that we delight in Him. One way we get to this is obvious. God approves of what is right. And so when we do what is right, and the only way we'll pursue right is pursuing God, then and only then, ultimately, it's when we think right. Thinking rightly is feeling and acting in a way that expresses in true proportion the value of what is most valuable. You say, what in the world did you just say? Let me read that again. Rightness is thinking and feeling and acting in a way that expresses in true proportion in true proportion of what is the value that is most valuable. What is it that, that is the most important thing to you? If God is the most important thing to you, then you're going to act and think and do rightly. And God is glorified greatly in that. God's satisfied in that. When you turn to Him, I, I've used this analogy before, there is such a joy when a child comes to a parent with arms stretched out, knowing with great confidence that that parent will pick that child up not coming reaching for the wallet, not coming reaching for uh, some favor from that parent, not looking for what they can get, but simply saying, I delight in you. There is nothing greater. In our culture, in our day, it may happen in a simpler form. It may be a text message. 
There is nothing like getting a text message in the middle of the day from one of my kids that says, I was thinking about you, I love you. Or I was thinking about you, thank you. You see, God has great thoughts toward you, and he loves you, and he delights in you, and he delights that you delight in him. Does that make sense? When you delight in him, it brings him joy because you're submitting your own selfish ways to his ways. And that's what the psalmist ultimately did. He was savoring God. He was slowly, consistently contemplating, God, it is overwhelming to think about where I can go to get away from you. Nowhere. It is overwhelming to think of how deeply you love me. You know me, but you love me anyway. It is amazing for me to think of all of the things that you have thought toward me, God. And I want to express value supremely in you. You see, here's the beauty. Why should we be glad to hear all these things? Because God's watching you. He's not like Santa Claus. He's not waiting to write you down on a a list. You see, he put you on his path. Every time I do the right thing, God is watching. Every time instead of sinning, I choose not to sin, he sees. Every time you resist the temptation, every time you stand up for the right thing, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, God knows it and he sees it and he sees your faithfulness and he delights in it. He takes great joy in it. God counts us perfect in Christ. You realize that, don't you? When Christ looks upon a Christian, excuse me, when God the Father looks upon a Christian, he sees us covered in the blood of Jesus. That that is the, the clearest analogy that we can give. We are made right positionally because of Christ Jesus. And we are becoming right in practice over and over again. And so God looks at us and sees us perfect in Christ, and then he begins to see us becoming in practice what we already are in position. Max Lucado said it this way, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And that leads us to this final thought I want you to see. God's children should be pliable. He sanctifies us, but he continues to shape us. He loves you even though he knows you. He watches over you because he loves you. He delights in you and longs for you to be with him. And therefore, he continues to shape and to mold you. Today, church family, look, look, look. There is no place you can go to escape God, Scott Pittman. There is no place where you can go to escape God, Homer Thompson. There is no place, choir, any of you, that you can go to escape God. Miss Agnes, there is no place that you can go that God does not love you. Ricky, God loves you everywhere you go. He loves you as you are in Christ, perfect before Him, but He's making you, He, he determined that He's going to make you better. He's going to make you continue to grow. And all of us, anybody in this place needs to wake up to that truth. All of us need to wake up to the truth. If we're going to experience revival, it's not because we feel bad about our sin. It's because we feel great about our Savior. We need to focus on Jesus Christ. You today can experience power. You today can experience victory. You today who may be in a hopeless situation can experience hope. Here's the pliability. David said, you already know it all, but what is his prayer at the end? Search me. God, look into my heart. 
because you even know better than I do. I'll look at stuff and I'll try to clean it up in my mind and say, well, it's not that bad. No, David said, God, I don't want anything there that you don't want there. So God loves you exactly where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. We're going to experience revival in the days ahead as individual believers begin to flew into this, as we kind of calibrate our sensitivity, if you will, to the Spirit of God and say, Lord, I don't want anything in my life that will keep me from you. Amen? Today, if you've never trusted Him, come to Him. You're in His presence. He is here in this place. Today, if you have wandered away from Him, turn and go back. You've not escaped. You've not hidden. He hasn't lost your address. You know, there's a whole list of uh, of fairly cheesy sayings, but they make sense. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your picture would be in it. He, he would send you a card every day if he sent cards, and in fact, he sent you his word. The living word, Jesus, and the written word, the Bible. God loves you with an inexhaustible love, an incomprehensible love, an inescapable presence because he's watching over you and he loves you. Today, I want to challenge you, and here are two challenges, very quickly. Everybody look this way. Our revival has been a week. We've talked about it for months. We've talked about it. I hope that you've been talking about it. I I, I have a, a realization that happens from time to time. You'll walk out of here in a moment, and for the most part, you won't think about church again until it's time to come to church again. And the staff sits around and we think about church all the time. We think about what God's doing here. We cast vision for what God's doing here. And so we've talked about revival a bunch. We put up billboards. If you haven't seen the billboard out over Chick-fil-A, there's a really, really great billboard that says, Terry Lucino's face, that says, Encounter Christ. We've put Facebook ads out there and we put all kinds of information out there. I need you to get involved. If God really is the supreme value of our lives, wouldn't you want everybody to know him? We've got over 2,500 cards here at the Welcome Center at the Connect Station. I want to challenge every person here. Scott has already issued that challenge this morning. Every single adult here, I want you to take 10 to 15 cards, and I want you to hand them out individually. Hand them out at restaurants. I I said this Wednesday to our senior adults, do not tip cheaply and leave a card with our church's name on it. Be a good, generous tipper. But if you're going to leave one of these, show somebody the love of Jesus in the way that you respond to them. Be nice to them. Don't be a grouch and then, oh, by the way, come to my revival. And they go, oh, so I can be like you? No thanks. Be sweet. Be loving. Be like Jesus. But I I want to challenge you to take 10 to 15. Invite your friends. Invite your classmates. Literally, hand them off. They just simply say, would you be my guest? Invite someone to the revival and to the Easter service. In the coming week, I want all of these cards gone. I don't want to see any of them next Sunday. I want all of them everywhere out. But it'll take all of us to do that. I I plan to go door to door in my neighborhood, knock on the door, and invite every single neighbor in my personal neighborhood. Our staff this week are going to get out in the avenues and invite people to come to the revival and to our Easter service. Why? Because I delight in God. And I want everyone to know that great God. Today, if you're lost, We're going to have a hymn of invitation. This is just a song that we'll sing and a time for you to respond. We have encouragers that will be here at the front, and they would love to take the Word of God and sit down with you and explain to you what it means to have a relationship with this great God we've studied today.
If you've never trusted Him, why don't you let today be the day that you place your faith in Him, that you're connected to the source of power. You've been cut off because of your sin, but you can be reconciled with God, made right with Him. And maybe today some of you are off course with your purpose. Your purpose is clouded, and it's clouded because you have got sin in your heart and your life. Let those things go. Pray this prayer. God, search me. Know me. Show me if there's offensive, harmful things in me, and lead me in the right way. Let God have his way in these next few moments as our instrumentalists come. And I'm praying I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. This invitation time is yours. I pray, God, that you would move mightily in our midst. In Jesus' name, have your way. Amen. Let's sing.